DW Living Planet with Sarah Stephan. A very warm welcome to this week's show where we talk about the power of solar. Solar energy is about to get a push in Croatia, which has a lot of sunshine, but so far hasn't really done much with that potential. We are seeing a momentum and also not just the interest uh, from the citizens uh, themselves, but also from the municipalities and cities. So local authorities are also starting to understand that their source of energy or their energy resilience or crisis resilience is important. Food waste is a global problem. In many countries of the global south, it's often down to being unable to keep products cool. Could solar power help? The value of food that goes to waste annually in Nigeria is more than 750 billion US dollars. Most of our farmers don't have that capacity to store food for a long period of time for future sale. A lot of food that ends up in landfill causes greenhouse gas emissions that affect the climate. And why is solar important again? So that we don't need to rely on oil and gas that's fueling climate change that's heating up our planet. We check in with a low-lying coastal community in the U.S. that's already feeling the effects of sea level rise. Delaware has the lowest mean land elevation in the United States, so we're very low-lying. And on top of that, we have a rate of sea level rise that is twice the global average. All that and more coming up now on this episode of DW's Living Planet. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Croatia. At first glance, the small Balkan country looks like a renewable haven. Some 65% of its electricity comes from green sources, mainly from old Yugoslav-era hydropower plants and a little wind and biomass. However, it's still heavily dependent on fossil fuel, which makes up some 40% of the country's electricity needs. And as climate change-related drought increases... Hydropower cannot keep up with demand, with imported coal and oil and gas filling the gap. Coastal Croatia is one of the sunniest places in Europe. So why is there so little solar power in a country that enjoys on average 2,700 hours of sun each year? And don't worry if you can't do the math that quickly in your head. That's 112 days of nonstop sunshine, day and night. Now, some Croatians want to bring more solar energy to the country. And one island is particularly eager, as Jennifer Collins found out. Cars roll off the ferry from Croatia's mainland to the popular vacation island of Tres. Some 3,000 people live on the island, but every summer its population swells with holidaymakers there to enjoy the vivid blue Adriatic waters, rolling lush farmland, quaint villages, ancient Roman ruins and sunshine, of course. No stress on Thress is the island motto, as locals like to remind visitors regularly. Judging by the friendly, relaxed smiles of people enjoying multiple coffees by the small harbour every day in the main town, that appears to be true. Apart from a lack of stress, there's another thing largely absent from the island of Thress, and that's solar energy, even though it's on Croatia's sun-kissed Dalmatian coast. On the way to the island, however, visitors will notice an oil refinery and a new liquid natural gas terminal. But a group of islanders are trying to harness the power of the more than 3,000 sunshine hours they enjoy every year and help the community decarbonise its energy system by 2040. 
we are trying to do our best to promote the renewable energy resources on the island. That's Franjo Tovic. Tovic is a man who wears many hats. The born and bred islander grows fruit and veg and has 20 beehives. Like many on the island, he also rears sheep and is secretary of the local sheep association. When he's not out in the field, the local official is busy fielding calls in his role as manager of the Aspertidas Energy Cooperative. Founded by the municipalities of Thres and neighbouring island Lochine in 2021, the Solar Energy Cooperative has 29 members made up of local authorities, public institutions, entrepreneurs and private citizens. They want to build a citizen-owned 500 kilowatt solar power plant. The solar project is fully crowdfunded. Within just three weeks of opening the campaign, Aspertidas had raised €100,000. Their goal had been just 60000 says Towich. And uh, it's funny, we've done a crowdfunding campaign uh, within the island and uh, we've done a homemade YouTube video, uh, basically of two or three minutes, and we show them what is going to be, what we are focused on, who we are. So uh, we were quite surprised about the local community uh, uh, movement and they were quite eager. Thres and its inhabitants are ahead of the curve in Croatia when it comes to solar. At first glance, the small Balkan country looks like a renewables haven. Some 65% of its electricity comes from green sources, mainly from old Yugoslav-era hydropower plants and a little wind and biomass. Still, it's heavily dependent on fossil fuels. Hydrocarbons account for 40% of the country's electricity needs and as climate change-related drought increases, hydropower cannot keep up with demand, with imported coal, oil and gas filling the gap. Croatia enjoys 2,700 hours of sun each year. The coast is one of the sunniest places in Europe, but solar energy makes up just 1% of the electricity mix. That's compared to 12.5% in Germany. In fact, the country is one of the worst performers in the European Union when it comes to solar. Andrew Bachan is an expert in renewable energy sources. He works with the state-owned energy institute, Hervoya Pazar, located far from the calm island life on a busy street in the Croatian capital, Zagreb. Bachan explains that lagging regulation, grid connection issues and a slow bureaucracy are all holding back solar. But he says the last five years have seen an increase in the amount of installed solar capacity, even if it remains small at 220 megawatts. In the, in the future, I think that uh, solar would play a significant role because uh, a lot of sectors are, are moving to, towards electrification, for example, transport and, and heating and cooling. We are limited with the hydropower resources. Croatia, I think we, we have exhausted all, all, all our hydropower resources. Batin believes energy cooperatives and communities like Thres have an important role to play in expanding solar. In a nondescript office block in one of Zagreb's leafy neighbourhoods, Mislav Kiraz welcomes some visitors to the Green Energy Cooperative, or ZEZ. Employees chat and get coffee from the kitchen, which houses a blackboard with the words We've got the solar virus emblazoned on it in chalk. Kiraz is programme coordinator at the organisation, which was initially set up in 2013 as part of a United Nations project to develop energy cooperatives in Croatia. 
I would say that we were really uh, pioneers in this particular niche of energy cooperatives or energy communities in Croatia because there were literally none then. And they've been slugging away on photovoltaic ever since, convincing and helping communities like the island of Sres to invest in cooperative solar energy. Though solar is still in its infancy in Croatia, some of their hard work has paid off. A mix of factors, including a drop in solar prices, newly introduced tax relief for installing rooftop PV and the war in Ukraine are driving new interest in the green energy source. But now we, we're seeing a momentum and also not just the interest uh, from the citizens uh, themselves, but also from the municipalities and cities. So local authorities are also starting to understand that their source of energy or their energy resilience or crisis resilience is important. It's also becoming important for their uh, political agendas and, uh, and, and it's getting more into the mainstream than it was like five or seven years ago. So we definitely see a shift, especially in the last two years since the, the Ukrainian war started. Says wants to democratize energy with citizen-owned, decentralized and affordable renewables. Kiraz says they dream of neighborhoods coming together to form their own energy communities that would transform not just electricity, but also things like heat and mobility. However, critics say the laws governing such communities are flawed, with many left frustrated by overly complicated and cumbersome regulations. Cooperatives are also at times a tough sell in a former socialist country where some associate them with past corruption and abuse. But Zez has had success with the models in places like Tres and neighbouring island Kirk, as well as the city of Kryzhevsi, which has since become a green leader in the central eastern European country. In the meantime, Zez has also been focusing on promoting rooftop solar for individuals, providing information and technical help to Croatians. This is Deborah. <laughs> hey, Bok, Bok. Hello. Back on the island of Sres, Edward Deichmann is one of the individuals who recently installed rooftop solar. As three of his four children play around him, Deichmann stands outside his white-walled apartment building with sky-blue shutters. He excitedly explains an app on his cell phone that shows how much electricity his panels are producing. It's a relatively cloudy day, but the panels are hard at work. This is the app that shows you the production of electricity at the moment. Today we made almost 10 kilowatt of energy. It depends how much you get it at the moment. If you're getting 3 kilowatts, you can, uh, I don't know, switch on your dishwasher and probably TV and uh, laptop and two mobile phones. We installed these uh, infrared heaters on our, uh, on our ceiling, which is perfect combined with with this plant because we use the solar electricity directly to heat ourselves in the winter. A technician in Town Museum, Deichmann describes himself as the proud owner of solar panels. But he's an unlikely green energy advocate. For him, it's mainly about savings. Sometimes Deichmann produces more electricity than he needs and cuts his bills by up to 60%. He paid €6,300 for the panels, thanks to tax reliefs for solar. He'll need about seven years to pay off the 3.69 kilowatt array. Let's put it like this. If I would have to wait 15 years to repay it, I wouldn't buy it. So the economic part is first and then everything else comes second, to be really completely honest. Deichmann is happy with his investment. 
His one complaint is that he can only install a limited number of panels on the roof because he lives in an apartment building. If it were the whole uh, house were mine, then I, I, I could build, I don't know, 15 kilowatt. But I, I cannot. It was used by the people when they went to the Olympiad. Cooperative manager Franjo Toic talks about the photos on his office wall. They show old stone huts used by farmers for shelter when out harvesting in faraway vineyards. Like Deichmann, he has a complaint about solar energy in Croatia, but his comes down to red tape. The co-op has been waiting for over a year and a half to get the green light to start installation on the solar park. He hopes everything will be up and running within a year so investors can get a return on their investment. He doesn't want to let his neighbours down. But, he jokes, if the project flops, he may have to flee the island. So I'm trying my best not to, uh, not to break anything or... Uh me or my colleagues, because we love this island, we think we are doing great uh, stuff. I don't want to run away from, from Croatia to Germany. But before he gets too stressed out, he reminds himself of the island motto. I got the great hair, but at the end of the day, there is no stress on stress. Jennifer Collins, DW, Thress, Croatia. Elsewhere in Kenya on the African continent, solar power is also on the rise. And for many there, similarly to what we've just heard from Croatia, it's not just environmental concerns that are driving the boom. It's simply because solar power is cheaper. Let's hear more from reporter Karin Bench. Her report is presented by Ben Russell. Hazel's Nairobi house has a rooftop solar power system. The Kenyan woman uses the power it generates for almost everything. Heating, lighting, I only use electricity for the cooker. Hazel didn't choose solar energy because she wanted to protect the environment and help slow climate change. It's simply less expensive than getting electricity from Kenya's main energy provider, she says. It's a lot cheaper than uh, what Kenya power charges. Ever since, Hazel has been using solar energy almost exclusively, and her electricity bill has decreased massively. She now only pays roughly one-third of what she used to. And solar energy is also more reliable. Kenya has frequent power outages that regularly leave people in the dark. Some residents have resorted to large diesel generators as a backup, but those are expensive, so many people can't afford them. On top of that, many remote areas in Kenya are not plugged into the national power grid. Solar energy has therefore made people more independent. Anissa Osman is the CEO of CP Solar. The company is only five years old, but has become the largest provider of solar power installations in Kenya for trade, industry and private consumers. Solar energy has come a long way, she says. Maybe 15 years ago, the only solar item most people had was a calculator. Now more and more people are looking to adopt more solar in their everyday life. University of Pennsylvania's Kleinman Center for Energy Policy said in the report that Kenya has some of the best conditions for solar energy generation worldwide and is currently experiencing a solar boom. 80% of Kenya's electricity already comes from renewables, mostly geothermal energy. By 2030, Kenya wants to have 100% green energy. But in order to make that happen, the country has to be more active and expand its geothermal energy supplies from wind and solar, the report says. Kenya already has a couple of solar power stations that feed electricity into the national grid. The largest one is in Garissa, 
It provides 55 megawatts of power, generating electricity for more than 600,000 households. It was built by a Chinese company and has been operating for three years. China plays a big role when it comes to solar energy in Kenya. Until a few years ago, it was Western companies that were producing or assembling solar panels in Kenya. But that has changed, says Charles Ngare, CEO of Chloride Exide. We found that solar panels from the Far East were actually much cheaper than we were able to produce them. The competition from China is simply too strong. China's solar power production is the most rapidly expanding in the world, with Reuters reporting an expected 30% rise on solar production in 2023. The future of China's export market is less clear, with trade disputes muddying the waters between China and many countries. But even here in Kenya, China's dominance on the market can be clearly seen. All of the large solar panels Chloride Exide has on the roof of its factory are from China. Inside the factory hall, the company produces car and solar batteries. It's an energy-intensive production process. Thanks to the solar panels, though, the company can decrease some of its energy costs. Solar energy is actually booming in Kenya. Demand for solar products actually doubled in the last about two years. And there's little to suggest that demand will drop off anytime soon. UNESCO reports that solar energy is having a profound impact on rural parts of Kenya that have historically been cut off from traditional power sources. Solar-powered water pumps and lamps offer the potential for real change in rural communities. And for city dwellers like Hazel back in Nairobi. The solar plant on her roof is something that she plans to keep using long into the future. The sun is always there. We never get to a point where there is no sun. Ben Russell with that report by Karin Bench. Nigeria, many tons of fresh market produce are spoiled each day because there's no fridge around. But what if you could harness the power of the sun that's rotting veggies and have it power cold storage units? Evelyn McClafferty has more in this report by Daniel Plafka and Samson Adelike. There's lots of lush green produce being grown in farms just on the outskirts of Lagos. You can hear the traffic alongside the farmed land. But this area, because of rapid city growth, is not within city limits, and this has proved problematic for the farmers who've been trying to sell fresh produce at the city's markets, which feed 15 million people. Harvested vegetables need to be transported quickly to the markets because there is a lack of refrigeration facilities across Nigeria. But because of the distance from farm to fork, a large proportion of fresh produce spoils before it can be sold. It's something that's frustrated Ramate Larke ever since she opened her business at one of the markets 13 years ago. She sits at her market stall, surrounded by fresh carrots and a wide variety of colourful fruits. <laughs> We try to sell new produce before the end of the next day. When it's very sunny, we cover it so it won't spoil quickly. The price drops when it's no longer fresh. 
Yesterday, I was able to sell these for almost 10,000 naira, but now I had to sell them for 6,000. Once they've spoiled, we have to throw them out. It's a waste and we lose money. So on the one hand, there's food waste and on the other, hunger. Many people in the city don't have enough food to eat. In a modern-looking facility in the city, painted white and light green, we meet Makos and Bula. We're at the Lagos Food Bank, which he set up and which distributes food to those who need it. It's full of huge bags of rice and grain. And here, Makos speaks strongly about combating food waste. Average Nigerian waste about 189 kilograms of food per year. More than 40% of the food we produce is lost across the entire agricultural value chain. The value of food that goes to waste right um, annually in Nigeria is more than 750 billion US dollars. Most of our farmers don't have that capacity to store food for a long period of time for future sale. A lot of food that ends up in landfill causes greenhouse gas emissions that affect the climate. But at another facility in Lagos, cold hubs, which are basically cold storage spaces, have been developed by a Nigerian startup and financed by a wide range of international investors. They look like large white refrigerator spaces with a white iron fence around them and inside crates and crates of fresh produce, carrots, peppers, tomatoes and leafy greens. Amongst all the fruit and vegetables, Harriet Joma, who works at Cold Hubs, outlines why they've been rolled out. We intend to extend the shave life of this produce from 2 to about 21 days. So this cold room has been helping a lot to solve the problem of post-harvest losses and food waste. Cold Hubs now operates in 28 states in Nigeria and has over 6,000 customers. The walk-in cold rooms are located next to markets or on farms and are cooled entirely using solar energy. Customers like trader Kaburu Usa pays the equivalent of 25 euro cent per day for a stored crate of vegetables. To him, it's worth it. Carrying several crates of produce out of the city's cold rooms, he says he can charge higher prices for his produce because it stays fresh much longer. Before, we used to buy in small quantities, just enough to ensure we would sell out the same day. But now that we have the cold room, we can buy in bulk and store them without any problems. At any time, we can meet our customers' needs by simply fetching what they ask for from the cold room instead of asking them to come back the next day. For many traders, however, cold storage remains a dream. Solutions like cold hubs are still very limited and there is enormous demand. About 220 million people live in Nigeria and the population is growing faster than almost any other country in Africa. Evelyn McClafferty presenting that report by Daniel Plavka and Samson Adeleke. Often when we talk about solar power or renewables in general, it stays in the realm of, well, it's a nice alternative. However, it really pays to think of the consequences if we keep burning fossil fuels. As our planet gets hotter and hotter and sea levels rise, where and how will we actually live? The first to go would be low-lying island states or coastal regions. Just take Delaware, which is one of the flattest states in the U.S. Coastal areas are already being flooded by storms, and beaches are disappearing due to erosion. Residents now need to protect themselves from the floods. Or move. 
Claudia Sarah has more in this report presented by Kathleen Schuster. But wherever the, the wooden stakes are along the shoreline, that's where quar logs were placed and tied down. Quinn Weitzel McCarran from a conservation organization called the American Littoral Society points to the shoreline of the marsh along Delaware Bay. Here at the Money Island Marina, volunteers place rolled-up coconut mats tied together into the water to stop the erosion of the coastline. It's seen as a necessary measure because the approximately 2,000-square-kilometer bay area along the Atlantic Ocean between the states of Delaware and New Jersey is particularly vulnerable to climate change. Rising sea levels and increasingly violent storms are gnawing away at the coast, and the habitat of animals and humans. Used to have houses running down the lane, right? And so it was all cleaned out, and you know, all the all the old housing was removed. And when was that? Um, this was put in place last year, so the houses were removed maybe the, the late the year before, cleaned up the shoreline and created a new beach for horseshoe crabs and, and shorebirds. That's ecologist Shane Goodshull. The American Littoral Society is currently trying to restore the habitat of the unique horseshoe crabs. The species has been around for over 400,000 years and can only be found here in Delaware Bay. If the beaches are eroded by storms, however, the crabs lose a vital part of their habitat as they use the banks to spawn. Their eggs are also an important food source for dozens of migratory bird species. And alongside the crabs, birds, and other wildlife that call this place home, people are also being severely impacted by sea level rise, explains Goodshull. A lot of these communities that are right on the, the edge of the marsh and, and the bay have issues with flooding. It is constant in the bayshore communities. Um, and you know, the worst case scenario is you have some sort of coastal storm at a high tide, you know, coincide, and, and then you have really high um, water levels and it creates a lot of issues. The authorities in Delaware are aware of these problems. At the Baywood Clubhouse in Millsboro, scientists and local residents are gathering to discuss how to deal with the impending danger. Danielle Swallow from the Delaware Sea Grant Research Group explains why this part of the U.S. East Coast is so badly affected by climate change. Yeah, Delaware has the lowest mean land elevation in the United States, so we're very low-lying. And on top of that, we have a rate of sea level rise that is twice the global average. Our tides are getting higher, and that's causing more inundation on our low-lying roads and properties. So we do have quite a lot of flood risk in Delaware. By 2030, sea levels are expected to rise by at least 30 centimeters, Danielle says. Not only does this mean that entire land masses are disappearing, but it also makes the region particularly vulnerable to flooding and storm damage. During storms and periods of high wind, the flooding doesn't just push water in from the Atlantic, but also causes the tributaries to swell, which in turn floods roads and properties, often for days at a time. Yule Lee is a resident of the town of Milton, and she's increasingly concerned about the future of the region. She says that as more construction projects get underway, more and more trees are being felled that would otherwise absorb rainwater. I'm about a mile away from an inland bay, which can flood, and that flooding could be worse than ocean flooding. Now we are aware of that. But we didn't know. I'm concerned, yes. Jennifer DeBernatis and her husband also bought a house in Sussex County where they could enjoy their retirement 
At least that was the plan. And my husband laughs and says, you know, our grandchildren will not inherit our house because it may not be there. It's not only the buildings that are under threat from flooding. The ecologically important marshland has also been severely damaged by the massive influx of salt water. Danielle Swallow says residents must now work with authorities to find solutions to adapt to climate change, for example, by raising their houses or moving inland. I think for Delawareans to become more resilient to sea level rise and climate change, first it takes the way we design our infrastructure so that we're building smarter and higher and further back from the coast. But then equally important, I think, is investing in our social services. All of the people in our community are whole, and they have the ability to withstand a flood or disruption and recover more quickly. Back at the Money Island Marina on Delaware Bay, ecologist Shane Goodshull is getting ready to witness a unique natural spectacle. Soon there will be a full moon, prompting the horseshoe crabs to come ashore to lay their eggs. He can't say what the coast will look like in 30 or 40 years, but right now, he wouldn't want to be anywhere else. It's a really cool place to be. It's tough to live. Kathleen Schuster there with a report by Claudia Zara. And that wraps up the show for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or topics you want covered, climate questions you want addressed on the show, you can always reach out to us at livingplanet at dw.com. The studio team was Siebke Tegtmeier and Philipp Rabenstein. I'm Sarah Steffen. Bye for now.